Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Health with Providence. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. For today's episode, another of our Future of Health hosts, Dr. Josh Luke, former hospital CEO and expert on healthcare affordability, will be interviewing Mike Butler, the president of Providence. They'll be discussing housing as a critical component of healthcare. Thank you both for your time today, gentlemen. I can't wait to hear the conversation. So I'm here today with Mike Butler, President of Strategy and Operations for Providence in their Irvine office. And I wanted to ask about health as a human right, because to me, I noticed it as a social media campaign, but I understand it actually is a campaign that started with the sisters that founded Providence years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you want to link it to our vision, which is health for a better world, which means giving every person and every community we serve the opportunity to live their lives to their fullest, both affordably and sustainably, mind, body, and spirit. And so if you look at the legacy of the Sisters of Providence, which started 175 years ago uh, in Montreal by uh, Emily Gamlin, who was a laywoman who had lost her three children and lost her husband, who one day rolled out of bed and said, I'm going to take care of the homeless women in the gutters of Montreal that just migrated over from um, uh, Ireland. And so when you look at our organization, it literally started by taking care of the homeless people uh, in Montreal. And then the evolution over time, you know, when the sisters landed um, in uh, Seattle, they actually created a, a HMO type plan, right? You paid X amount, of, X amount a month and you were given all the health services going forward. And so health as a human right uh, is at the core of who we are and not just in words, but in how we go about the world and how we make change. So again, that we can accomplish that goal of health for a better world and what it means to every person in every community we serve. That's so fantastic that Providence is staying true to its mission as a ministry. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how important those two things are in the upcoming election cycle as well when it comes to price transparency and dealing with the homelessness? Because I know I've learned about some of the initiatives Providence has that are addressing both of those things. I don't see a whole lot of health systems doing that, and it makes me very proud to see that Providence is doing those things. So can you share a little bit about those initiatives? Yeah, and I, I think affordability is so important. Uh, and I, I don't think there's enough emphasis on affordability, sustainability, and every person being able to receive that. And so what we have done is look at every component of our communities and said, how do we accomplish that goal? Um, housing has been a, a really interesting area because we've gone into many communities to look at how to best affect housing. And I'll give you a great example, Plymouth Housing, a partner of ours in Seattle. So on any given day in the Puget Sound community, we have between two and 300 homeless people in our hospitals that we have no place to discharge. Uh, and that's causing issues from a cost perspective. In fact, in, in 2017, the cost to, to healthcare, uncompensated care, was about $176 million. So as we began to, to deal with this challenge, we got engaged with Plymouth Housing with the idea that how do we impact that population? And so the population that I'm talking about that ends up in our hospitals and staying is the homeless folks that uh, tend to have disabilities. They tend to range between 45 and 65. And the beauty of Plymouth Housing is they've been around for 25 years and 95 percent of the people that go into their permanent housing stay there till the end of life, 94%. And I think one of the biggest challenges with homeless initiatives is making sure they're sustainable. And so what we've decided is that would be you know, our solution in the Seattle market to take care of those 3,250 people. We were the first ones to launch a new campaign called Proof with Plymouth Housing. We put in $5 million and since then has absolutely exploded. Uh, and so it's just been a great way to be a community catalyst. One of the things that we've always been really good at is being advocates. But what I've really trying to get our leaders and our boards and local folks to think about is being the catalyst in the community for change, being the hands, eyes, and ears on the ground to make 
be the leaders and catalyst for change. And what's so cool about Plymouth Housing, we're well on our way. We, the first building is going to open up in June. There's about, it's 100 um, units and 60 of the patients that are currently at our first Hill Hospital uh, at Swedish will be going there. And they will be getting that, hopefully, that key for life. So, And we're doing that. Every, every community is different. You know, we have communities where the, the, a lot of the homeless people, as an example, in Portland live in the Willamette River on boats that they're able to buy, move them around so that they're not constantly located to the point where they sink and then they get another one. And so every community is different. And I think that's the most important thing about it. You know, when you look at our, our heritage from the Sisters of Providence, it's all about building things that are sustainable. In fact, one really interesting is kind of diverting a little bit from 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 this topic, but there's a, a hospital in Montreal that's 6,000 beds. It was designed for the deaf at the time when people really thought that was a mental health issue. And our Sisters of Providence built that. Emily Gammon built that. And inside it, she built a train system to move supplies around. And the point I'm making is she responded to a call in a community and she brought innovation to the table. And so that's what we're trying to do in everything we do to ultimately allow people you know, to live their life to their fullest. That's great. And Providence has grown to be one of the largest health systems in the country. And as, as a former CEO of, I was the CEO of the largest uh, behavioral health hospital in Orange County and one of the uh, biggest advocates for many years in Southern California for that population. And it's great to see that in the you know, eight to 10 years or so since I left the C-suite, there is so much support now coming from the states and at the federal level for behavioral health, have you found with most of your hospitals being in the Western region, have you found the states being more receptive to uh, the goals of your ministry and, and stepping to the table, whether at the county or state level to provo- to support those efforts as well? Yeah, yeah, and I, I didn't mention, I've been with Providence for 22 years in the C-suite. So I was here when it was pretty small, <laughs> you know, now yeah. what it is today. And one of the things that we've done, again, uh, to be this community catalyst is we've, we've not only looked at how do we work with the homelessness and how how do we solve that problem? We've also done the same thing and really deep segmentation of the mental health issues in each of our communities and also have done the same thing with the Medicaid, Medicaid and Medi-Cal populations. And obviously there's linkage between all three of them. But just to give you a great example of the level of receptivity, um, there's a program here in, in Orange County called Mind OC. Uh, and Mind OC actually was an idea that came up through a group of people at Providence, some folks at Hogue. Uh, and the idea was we went out and talked to primary care docs. We went out and we talked to ERT, to uh, ER docs, et cetera. And there really was no triage system in Orange County that would give people a place to go for a period of time to be able to deal with the mental health issues. And so we're creating what's Mind OC. And the first project that's coming out of the ground uh, is in Santa Ana. It's a 60, 60 room unit. Uh, and it's how it was fun. It was one, the city of Santa Ana donated the land and building to uh, the largest health plan here. CalOptima put in $12 million as an example. And we've had multiple other uh, components of the government put money in. And so we found it incredibly receptive. Uh, and that's just one example. Um, I can give you another great example. Alaska Cares in Anchorage, Alaska, where we have, they have significant mental health issues related to child abuse. And we built a system there that really helps that population. And again, we were the catalyst to get it off the ground, but we have multiple supporters at both the state, federal and local level. Uh, and I think I think what Providence has tried to do really well is is make people aware of the issues of mental health. You know, and, and I think it's our whole country is getting to this point, too. Where it's no longer a stigma. It's something to sure. deal with. It's one of the challenges in our society. And how do we take better care of it? The other thing that's beginning to be exciting is more and more people are getting engaged from a private philanthropic perspective. They're saying, hey, I've been through this with my family. This organization is really trying to make a difference. I want to be involved and, and be part of that cause. 
Well, I just want to, uh, first of all, say thank you as a native Southern Californian like yourself, growing up here and, and being a CEO of several hospitals, I chaired the Cal Optima Provider Advisor Committee. I'm a member of the, the board of the Alzheimer's Orange County. For years, we weren't able to get traction, even in my role as kind of the glue as a CEO to hopefully connect the other systems. But because Providence owns and manages, I think what four or five of the leading hospitals in Orange County, I really appreciate that you guys have made that a priority. You're working with those organizations. And it's not a problem we dealt with in Southern California, at least here in Orange County, outside of downtown Los Angeles. When you talk about homelessness and even the opioid epidemic, those are things that are new to Orange County for the most part in the last five to 10 years. So can you speak a little bit more specifically to, to how some of those other partnerships are evolving? Because I think that's really exciting, as you mentioned, that you're, you're finding a much more receptive ear and audience when you guys look to partner to solve some of these problems. Yeah, you know, and another great example um, in Orange County is in the city of Anaheim, uh, working with the Salvation Army. They have stood up a temporary um, housing units, I think there's 200 units, in in an interesting idea in industrial parks with the idea that, one, it's a good place for people to congregate, there's land available, we can make it happen. And secondly, over time, there's hope that there can be connections to the kind of jobs that are there and available. So what we're trying to do, again, is in, in, in every case, understand what a community's needs are and how do we respond to it. And I think the, I think what, what needs to happen in Orange County is similar to what we've done in places like Spokane, Portland, Anchorage, et cetera. And that is really, really understand the demographics of the homeless population and then find sustainable solutions for them. And I, you know, what I'm finding exciting about it, not only are the, the healthcare providers willing to work together on it, um, but the cities are incredibly engaged. And, you know, it's an imperative that they be because they can help lead to federal grants, state grants, the whole nine yards. So that that is looking at Orange County. I think what, you know, like there's 5,400 people in Orange County. One of, one of the interesting things of the demographics of Providence, 40% of the homeless people in America live in our geography. Wow. And so um, while we've made it our own cause, um, it's an imperative in our yeah, communities. Sure. And so I think in Orange County, we're continually looking for different solutions in different parts of the county. Well, we appreciate that. And I wanna, I wanna pivot the conversation a little bit to another example of uh, how Providence is really um, acting like a true ministry instead of, and look, I'll be frank, I'm, I'm critical of a lot of hospitals nationwide because they have the not-for-profit status, but they, they aren't out there um, serving the community and listening to the community's needs and partnering to address them. I heard some stats recently about your maternal death rates, which have come down, which have been a priority, which uh, having run OB units, it's very difficult at times to do that. So can you share um, some of the tactics you've all used and some of the success uh, that you've experienced as a result? Yeah, you know, about seven years ago, I'll never forget sitting down with a couple of folks from our team and said, you know, how do we bring together all of our clinicians across the system, particularly specialists? You know, in some cases, specialists in our, our medical foundation in California, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're employed in other parts of the system and whatnot. And probably of all the specialists that practice at our facilities, probably 70% of them are still in private practice. So we came with this idea, could we create a set of, uh, and there's nine of them today, of these virtual clinical institutes that could work together and, and use technology um, 
to create several things. One is to, to improve quality and safety, so take out variation. Two, to focus on, on how do we take out variation on cost. And then three, how do we uh, move forward in actually creating products that we can take to the marketplace like bundles? And so that that has been our, our tactic as an organization going forward. And it's it's grown enormously. You know, the, the example you're talking about is in 2018, we had 74,000 births across Providence. We had, you wow. know, no maternal deaths. We had um, lower NICU days than we've ever had by 30 some percent. And we've also um, had a, a lot less cost, meaning that we're actually able to deliver a baby on average less than what we're paid by Medicaid or Medi-Cal. And so that has been a strategy of ours um, as an organization for about the last seven years, doing it across, you know, women's and children's orthopedics, neurosciences, cardiology, cancer, on and on and on. I mean, as an example, we take care of 42,000 new cancer patients every year. There are not many organizations that do that. So how do we do that to improve quality? How do we do that to create research? How do we do that to be able to create more ways to, to bring more, actually more patients to our physicians that work with us? So it's been remarkably, I mean, when I talk to a lot of my peers across the country, they wonder how we've pulled this off. And I, I think I think it's one people's commitment to our ministry, as you called it, uh, and the mission of where we began and what we do and, and our goal of giving every person, every community we serve, ability to live life to their fullest. I think it's a combination of that. And we're, we're blessed being on the West Coast, because as you've probably experienced when you were working, you know, in the facilities, a lot of physicians went to school together, were trained together, sure. and it really allows for that collegiality to really move move things forward. What a lot of uh, the viewers and listeners might not know that that, that I uh, understood when I uh, heard about your maternal death rate and your project and how it came down and the great work you're doing is is when you as a hospital executive are looking to save money or make more money, that's not where you start. So this is an example of Providence just saying, hey, this is putting the patient first. This right. is true to our mission. This is true to our ministry. Is there savings? Is there less risk? Of course there is, but it's certainly not in the top 15 or 20 things as a healthcare executive you look at. So I wanted to just again congratulate you because what I look for is health systems that are putting the patient first, trying to move uh, population health management and the focus on the patient forward. And I, I think that's just another great example of that. Gentlemen, this is a great conversation, but we're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be back with more on the future of health discussing housing as a critical component of health. In a time full of war, be peace. In a time full of doubt, just believe. Yeah, there ain't that much difference between you and me. In a time full of war, be peace.
Yeah, you only get one go round. Cause the finish line is six feet in the ground. In a race you can't win, just slow it down. In a We're back on the future of health. Today's special episode with Dr. Josh Luke and Mike Butler discussing housing as it relates to healthcare. Gentlemen, let's continue. I also wanted to ask you a little bit about um, some of the other initiatives you're doing as you transition to value-based care. Um, one of the things that a lot of health systems experience once that implementation starts is they see their revenue drop. Um, and oftentimes if they're publicly traded, their shareholders weren't adequately prepared for that's the natural evolution of what happens. And having worked in, in California and grown up with Providence, you've dealt with risk-based uh, um, reimbursement for a long time. So this is nothing new to you, but it is new to so many people. So how have you, A, gone through that process with your management team, and B, made sure the communication prepared everybody to understand uh, what they could expect as, a, as you transition into value-based care? Yeah, yeah, several things. Um, you know, number one, it's an imperative to engage the doctors early on, particularly the primary care docs with regard to to, you know what it means you know from a value-based care perspective what it means to the networks that we create that they would they would refer into so really engaging them on the front end and we, we have many examples where we went down the path of creating a value-based relationship and didn't do that and to a T they fail sure. and so we've really made that number one and so one of the things we've done with our physician enterprise or medical groups is we've created governance structures in every one of our markets so there's a single structure for all of California single structure for Oregon etc cetera, etc cetera, and a subcommittee of the the corporate board that is a group of physicians and they're dedicated to this. So they're dedicated to comp models are dedicated to value-based contracts are dedicated to reducing physician burnout uh, and dedicated to, you know, serving more people and creating access, particularly for the, the poor and vulnerable. We also put a stake in the ground that we would never move a, a medical group to uh, value-based care, capitation managed care, whatever you want to call it until they got to the point where we, 30% of the business could be shifted to that. And our experiences, whether it be the Heritage Medical Group that we have here in Orange County, which is really a phenomenally performing sure. organization, FACI and the San Fernando Valley, or our entire delivery system, which is an entirely value-based model in, in Portland. So that is what we've, we've, we've put the stake in the ground. And then what we've done is taken from whether it be FACI, Heritage, our health plan, and come up with the best practices as it relates to for the physician to be managing the patients. And also we're using a lot of outside data. So there's a company called Roadmap, which allows us to really go in and look at in great detail where every physician in every community we serve is performing on a scale of one to five. And we identified once they get below 2.75, they're ready to be able to be part of our value-based care network. So we've taken experiences, taken data, uh, and picked a goal that we felt was realistic. And we're really excited about it. Today, we vary from zero in Anchorage, Alaska to, you know, 70% in parts of Orange County. And the ones that are at 70%, you know, the Heritage Medical Group Fullerton is remarkable. I mean, they have incredible yeah. physician out physician satisfaction, incredible patient satisfaction. They're making money on primary care. They, their, their value-based contracts have surpluses. They have the lowest physician burnout uh, in the organization as well. And one of the other things that we're doing related to that um, was that we've created this culture. It's called Own It. 
It was actually built out of the Heritage Medical Group that really brings all of our physicians together to to own it with their with their caregivers, own it with their patients and whatnot. So that's the, the methodical way that we're going about it. Uh, and so far, so good. I wanted to pivot the conversation a little bit to price transparency. So uh, 2019 was the first year that the federal government acquired health systems to post prices. And the immediate feedback was, I don't understand any of this. It's in a foreign language. And so uh, as an organization that's focused on making sure uh, their customers are satisfied and their patients are satisfied, what steps is Providence taking to make sure that, that patients not only have access to prices, but that it's in a, a language, so to speak, that they can understand? Yeah, we've launched an issue about it, began about a year and a half ago, called patient-friendly revenue cycle. <laughs> and it's, it probably needs to be patient-friendly financial services. And, and the realization that we came to is that, yeah, you could put your charge master out there. You could put out there what you got paid by an organization. But in the environment that we live in today, you know, outside of our Medi-Cal patients and our Medicare patients is, is in Providence, about 20% of our, or 20% of our receivables are related to high deductible plans. And so what we're trying to really do is build systems and structures to, to help people understand what that means to them, the out-of-pocket sure. part. Um, and so that they can prepare for it uh, and really understand if you have a baby at, at one of our places, this is your plan. This is what's likely to happen because there are some very, very high, sure. level, particularly on the exchange. And so really creating by real deep customer segmentation, exactly how we create the transparency of what's going out of pocket for them and how best to manage it for them. There are people who who don't mind writing a check, you know, at pre-op. <laughs> yeah. There are people based upon their circumstances who would prefer to do a payment plan. And there's people that would prefer to pay for it, you know, right after the case. And so what we've tried to do is really understand all the demographics of the people that we work with because it's, you know, there, there are predictions that it'll be a third of the revenue of sure. health systems down the road in three to five years. So it's really critical to us. But if we can create the differentiator in the marketplace with regard to how we manage this, and it, we're also engaging our health plans in, in working on this and even trying some technologies like um, uh, blockchain, et cetera, to create ledgers for people. So right. the focus is really on how do we create this, this patient-friendly financial services in a way that, again, delivers to the customer kind of at that end of one. Well, I like that name, patient-friendly financial services. That, that gets right to the point. I wanted to reference uh, a, a comment I heard you make on another show, which was about you helping your daughter access health care and really transition to affordability. And the number you threw out in my research that it really she ended up on about $10,000 a year is about the average for an individual to obtain health insurance in 2020. For a family, it's closer to, to $23,000. Uh, with about a $1,500 a month um, share of cost deductible and, excuse me, uh, $1,500 a month on the payroll withhold and then 5,000 high deductible. With those numbers in mind, um, what other steps are you taking beyond just, and I love the fact that you're engaging the some of your partners as well. Uh, what else should Americans, should listeners be doing to, um, to better understand, I call it becoming an EHC, an engaged healthcare consumer, what steps have you made available to them? What resources have you made available to them to help them in their process to engage, save money, and not overspend on things that they might not necessarily need? Yeah, there's a lot in that question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I, I think with the, the you know having gone through this with my daughter, she owns her own business, and you know, she ended up buying a bronze plan from Primera, and I think it was three hundred dollars a month out of pocket, and like ten or twelve thousand or excuse me, out-of-pocket premium, and then 10, 10 to 12,000 deductible. Um, in her case, she probably could afford that. 
but the reason that it's that, <laughs> in my own opinion, and, and I'll tell you how we're dealing with it, because we're try, always trying to control our own destiny at Providence. You know, if you look at pharmaceutical costs uh, in many, many of our capitation contracts or value-based care contracts, more money is now spent you know, on pharmaceuticals than hospitals uh, and way more than physicians. Um, And so one, we're trying to be advocates nationally with AHA and others about how do we, how do we get more regulation in that space? Because I think we all know that basically pharmacy R&D is done on the backs of the U.S. healthcare dollar. Um, But in parallel, um, we're a partner with Civic Rx. I don't know if you know much about Civic Rx, but uh, one of the partners on that. And really driving that, that organization is up to 45 members about to add a really, really large health plan and and maybe a very large integrated network with the idea that everything that we can do within that as a non-for-profit, we're going to do that to lower the overall cost of pharmaceuticals. The second thing that we're trying to do is create administrative simplification between health plans. Uh, We're able to do more and more of this with our own organization. So we bought a company called Lumetic, which is a blockchain company, and are piloting it. Again, how can we use blockchain as a, a mechanism for example, on our bundled contracts to take out all of the administrative costs. Because right now, if you look at healthcare costs in our country, 9% of it is administrative between providers and insurance companies. So what we're trying to do, you know, is be able in every way, shape or form, have an influence on driving down those two elements of cost drivers as an organization in parallel to doing the things I described, you know, around the whole the friendly patient financial services work that we're doing. And that's a lot more than most health systems are doing. So I appreciate that your ministry remains focused on that. So one of the things I wanted to also ask you about was innovation. Innovation is something that that I'm a a big fan of. We actually have a, at the National Readmission Prevention Collaborative, we have an innovation contest each year for individuals, organizations that are moving innovation and healthcare forward, and Providence is doing so much in that area. Can you share with us a few other things that Providence is doing um, just to help healthcare transform into future delivery? Yeah, about six years ago, we made a decision to hire um, our first chief strategy officer. We actually had never had one. We kind of looked at the C-suite as making strategy, and it worked fine. And if we started going down this path, we had only one criteria, one criteria only, and that person could not come from healthcare because we really wanted something different. And so I think I interviewed 24 people before the 25th one was a guy named Aaron Martin who worked for Amazon. And the reason that we picked Aaron was a combination of his entrepreneurial background in healthcare, uh, the fact that he had had worked at Amazon on some pretty transformational things around Kindle and and, and online publishing. And then thirdly, the fact that that Amazon, you know, the customer is always first. And what was interesting, by the time we hired him and he'd kind of written a strategic plan, all this before he actually showed up, we decided, well, you know, really what he is is our digital innovation officer, you know, with a consumer focus. So um, since he's arrived, um, we put um, we've invested in 16 different companies, uh, ranging from Kairos to One Medical uh, to Lyra. Lyra, by the way, is a really cool company started by the CFO of um, Facebook, uh, and it's an EPA type system for mental health services. And we're actually piloting it um, in our Alaska region, but it's growing like, like by leaps and bounds. And so all 16 of those organizations that we invested in are all about how does it how do we improve things for the consumer. 
period. Um, and then what we've done in parallel to that is we've built three different companies, uh, two of which we've spun off today. So the first one we built was, it was really interesting. We, we started as entrepreneurial and resident. And so you, if you were a successful entrepreneur, like you had spun off two or three companies, we would ask you to come in, you know, pay you X amount, give you health benefits, give you space and give you access to anybody Great. in the organization from the CEO, you know, all the way down to a volunteer. Uh, and so the first group we, we brought in was a guy named Mike McSherry. He and his team had started a company called Swipe and they sold it to T-Mobile. And um, after like six months of research and all that, they identified that the number one issue that, that primary care doctors were asking about was I really need an application to help me prescribe apps to my people based upon their diagnosis and everything they're dealing with. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so he went in, figured out how to extract the right amount of information from Epic, our EMR, put it onto an app, and then to be able to, through algorithms and, and all kinds of different things, connect people to the right solutions. And when we took it to our physicians and piloted it, it was an overwhelming success. I mean, people are like, wow, this is great. This is going to free my day up, yeah. give me a chance to you know, do, you know, do real email between my patients, see more patients, great. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that company we ended up spinning off. We're minority owners now, and um, they're growing by leaps and bounds across the country. They're working with some really innovative organizations like UPMC, who's actually sure. having them do different things on top of this. So that was number one. The second one was um, a company called Circle, which was an app, again, for first time expecting moms. And we had a really great success rate, meaning that that, that moms that delivered at our place, our hospitals would tend to keep in the system with our pediatricians at like three times the rate historically. Um, And then we merged that with a company called Wildflower where we have minority interest. And now it's a national app company that's doing those kind of things for consumers. And the last one, which is um, one we think pretty most exciting and it's called, we call it DexCare for now. We haven't spun it off yet, but what it really focuses on is how to triage a patient uh, based upon, you know, starting out with a text message, you know, whether it be, you know, triage them to a, a virtual express care visit, send them to an express care site, send them an urgent care, send them to an extra urgent care, which is almost an ER, send them yeah. an ER, et cetera. And that, that has been wonderfully successful. I think we had almost 500,000 new people connect through the system to that last year alone. All of our innovation in that particular area is all about how do we create better ways for the customer to move through the system. That's fabulous. I wasn't aware of, of several of those. And uh, it's, it's oftentimes I see health systems that have these kind of incubators or innovation wings. And when I follow up with the entrepreneurs several months later, they say, yeah, just kind of we got done and we haven't heard from them since. So it's, it's fabulous to hear that you guys are finding uh, true solutions focused on the patient. Can you tell us a little bit more about the pilot project up in Alaska? It really uh, piqued my oh, interest. Oh, Alaska Cares? Yeah. You know, one thing before you go on to that, um, and this will tell you that that we, it really is working for us that we're actually delivering. So we actually are Providence Ventures company, which owns or has the ownership in those 16 companies, offices in the Silicon Valley. Uh, and I can tell you right now, all of the VC private equity firms that are interested in healthcare pretty much come to us first now yeah. because we have proven through the 16, because sure. all 16 we've done have been with other different private equity or venture companies and all 16 of those companies use our services. That's great. So um, it's been really, really good that way. 
again, uh, getting back to the fact that you, you're acting in, in a manner where you're ministry and putting the patient first and others throughout the country, there's so few that I see, whether they're not for profit or not, that are putting the patient first. They're acting like for profits. And that's one of the, the reasons I love the Health is a Human Right campaign, that it stood out to me. And it was great to learn that that's been part of your, your history from the beginning. You mentioned um, a partner called Lyra yeah. and, and a project in Alaska that focuses on behavioral health. Can you talk a little bit more yeah, about that? Yeah, so, so Lyra was a company that um, we invested in about two years ago. Like I said, it was started by the CFO of Facebook. Uh, and the idea was there has to be a way to better utilize technology as it relates to managing mental health issues. And so what we decided to do was pilot with our Alaska caregivers, or we call them caregivers employees, and offer that service to them. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's a little more expensive than mo- most uh, of those types of services out there. But we really, again, if we're going to invest in a company, we need to walk the talk. And sure. so we decided to pilot it there. And to date, we've had great success on it. Um, and Lyra keeps growing as an organization. Um, and it, they're not losing a single customer. Uh, and so what we plan on doing is over time rolling that out across the entire system. Right. And, um, you know, it's what's so interesting about mental health is not only is it the caregivers, that's also their dependents. Um, Children in particular um, are able to have much better conversations about what they're dealing with virtually than they are face to face. And so sure. there's so many interesting learnings of how to interact in the world we live in today. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I have a couple books called Health Wealth. And, and in those books, I talk about the need for more widely accepted um, telehealth. And what I've found is I'm a Gen Xer and uh, Gen Xers and boomers are really hesitant to try telehealth because it just sounds so they'd rather waste half their day going to a doctor's office and rearranging their schedule instead of just trying it once for a basic cold or something. But where I really see it moving the needle, and I think you just started to touch on this, is in rural areas, in, in behavioral health situations, providing access, timely access. Can you speak a little bit more about how Providence is using um, telehealth resources and partnerships to address the homelessness issue as well? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it, the adoption rate for telehealth is really interesting. And, and what we find is when someone finally, we finally get someone to use it, um, the stick rate is incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's absolutely incredible. We get a net, the last one I saw, we had a net promoter score of 98. That's great. You know, on, True on in a, my house as well, by the way. Yeah. One of the things that we're rolling out is the new Providence brand as a single organization to the marketplace. And I think that that is going to be give us the ability to, I think, really get this in front of more people. Um, as an example, right now, if you go in, on Google and, you know, Google Providence or Providence Angels of Health, whatever, you, you get so many different things that come at you, sure. whereas we're going to be super focused and, and we're going to take all the, the lessons we've learned on our digital marketing to the whole population. So I think we can accelerate it that way. But on the consumer side, you know, I, I think our brand is going to be the best way for us to make that happen uh, going forward. And, and also getting one of the things that we haven't done I don't think well enough yet is get our physicians to be champions of it. Sure. You know, it's interesting when I go to my primary care physician, he's a champion of it. So his practice is flourishing. He knows, you know, who knows what needs to go where and whatnot. So really finding more champions like that as well. And just the continual digital marketing push. And I tell you, like I said, once somebody uses it, it works really well. Today's special episode is going to take a quick break. We'll be the last ones dancing when the lights go out, when there's no I will still hold you down We'll be the last ones dancing In the faceless crowd When there's no one to hold you I will still hold you 
with guest host Dr. Josh Luke. We're talking about housing as a critical component to healthcare with Providence's Mike Butler. Let's talk a little bit more about um, just what uh, the consumer ex- is experiencing uh, in healthcare delivery, which is the shift from inpatient to outpatient and how um, Providence has been kind of championing their efforts uh, in that uh, that shift to outpatient yeah. care as well. Yeah, so about three or four years ago, we came up with this idea, you know, now we built and constructed this big, huge health system. <laughs> Why don't we deconstruct it? And it was purely through the lens of the consumer combined with all of these outsiders coming into our space, you know, the sure. drug companies, Walgreens, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we did is we deconstructed the entire ambulatory care network, the entire physician enterprise, and the entire what we call home and community services. So this is everything from our long-term care facilities to hospice care and home infusion, those kind of things. Sure. And we deconstructed it um, 
and there was no secret cows, meaning you could come forward with whatever you wanted to do with your business and we would assess it. And so just to give you an example on the Amatory Care Network, I, I think we have over 400 sites now between Express Care, Urgent Care, ASCs, et cetera. And we actually had accumulated an incredible set, set of ambulatory assets. We just were not using them as it related to what they needed to be used for. They were a distribution channel to a hospital system. Sure. And so when we pull, peeled them apart and, and looked at our cost structures, look at our contracts, look at our governance models, look at our joint ventures, we said, time out. We need to redesign it where not only is it a distribution channel to the hospitals when appropriate, but also it needs to be able to compete affordably with all of its for-profit competitors. Uh, and so that's what we've done. So we, we've done it. We've redesigned comp models that are more competitive, that are actually more affordable because they're not, you know, they're not laid into a historical hospital comp model. They're not laid into the tenure of those contracts. And people who really like to work at an ASC don't like working in a hospital OR, sure. you know, and so so it, it, it really was just deconstructing it all the way. Um, to get back to your point around the you know, patient-friendly financial services, we made a decision on the physician enterprise to no longer have the hospital side of the house do revenue cycle. So we bought a company out of Iowa called MediRev. We own 51% of it, and they are dedicated to that. And they've had better results for the consumer by doing that as a physician group focus. Um, and so that's that's what we've been doing. We've done it, like I said, for the physician enterprise. I told you a little bit about the, the physician, sure. the, the governance model. We've done it for the ambulatory care network, uh, and we've done it for um, our home and community services, which is really interesting. It's probably the fastest growing part of the organization because of the growth, the aging, and the willingness for people people to, to have her, uh, services at home. And it's actually going to be the first uh, one of our uh, our businesses where we've ever gone into communities where we don't have hospitals uh, or clinics because we think there's some real great opportunity in that particular space sure. uh, because there's a lot of kind of weak providers in that. And we have great net promoter scores and great satisfaction there. So that's, that's our kind of deconstruction. It's really deconstructing through the lens of the consumer. Sure. But effective in the long term, which is really the overall goal. Um, shifting the conversation back to homelessness, uh, I know in 2010, uh, Illumination Foundation comes into Orange County and, and opens the first, uh, I think it was at the ribbon cutting, opening up the first um, former motel that, that can house homelessness long before the homelessness epidemic really struck Orange County. Um, but, but at the time when I was running a behavioral health hospital and I studied the issue with the county and the hospital association, what I found was the the uh, bottleneck wasn't so much when they came to my hospital or even the short-term housing afterwards. It was maybe the long-term, the six or seven months. And when I asked about a, a hospital term, I asked about length of stay in the secondary uh, area. They went, wow, it ranges from four months to nine months. And all of a sudden, I was in their business and they didn't like it because they said, well, this seems to be the bottleneck, um, that there really isn't a formula for when it's appropriate to say somebody's ready to re-enter uh, the market after a behavioral health acute episode. So what I wanted to ask is, as you look around uh, the different regions your hospital is in, you're dealing with this in so many different ways. Can you give another example of a, an area or a region that is really dealing with the, the entirety of the problem? Um, long-term solutions, whether you mentioned work training earlier, not just housing, but food, work training, preparing individuals to re-enter society. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, probably the best example in Providence would be in Spokane, Washington, where we've partnered with Catholic Charities for many, many, many years. And what we've done there, we have, have gone in and basically, again, like I said earlier, segmented the population, identified solutions for the population. 
And since we've implemented that, we reduced homelessness by more than half. That's great. Uh, and I was out there recently and went on a walk through the city, and it, it's really remarkable. And, you know, and, there, and there's part of the population that we'll probably never solve for that. So again, what it comes down to is identifying, you know, the population. And the length of stay is a really great observation because we have, I think, ten different buildings dedicated to the homelessness in in Spokane, and they vary upon their usage. We have a respite, a respite home where people stay for a short length of stay and we have all the way to permanent where they get the key for life. So it's really, really identifying the demographics of a community and really looking at how you go about it. So let's talk about how someone who is a customer of Providence um, can, can do their part to help. If I'm somebody in Washington or Alaska or California says, wow, I've been going to this Providence Hospital for years. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that they're addressing homelessness in my community and others. Um, can you give a few suggestions for that individual, that healthy individual that is, is living the lifestyle they want, maybe surfing a couple days a week or doing whatever it is they do, but they're hearing this saying, I'm proud to partner with Providence. What can I do to help them? Can you offer a few suggestions? For yeah, folks? you know, I, I, think, um, I think number one is go volunteer. You know, and whether it be at a, you know, a soup kitchen, whether it be, you know, I know people on their own who go to the 10 cities, you know, and hand out food. Um, so you really can can understand what is going on and what these people are dealing with, because uh, I think it's really important to put yourself in their shoes. It was interesting, the la- not the last homeless account, but the one before I, I went on that and I went with one of our sisters and, and a, a gentleman who was homeless. And so he was basically our guide to where to go and just learning his story. Um, and he'll probably be homeless for forever, but he'll be doing different little things here and there to make a difference. He worked at a homeless shelter in Fairbanks, Alaska for a period of time. Um, and so you just you learn about what is going on and what, what, what their kind of hopes and aspirations are. His was to help the homelessness, even though he was homeless. Yeah. You know, it was really sure. it was kind of cool. Um, so that's number one. I think, you know, number two is um, where you don't see the government stepping up, you know, whether it be the local, the county, the state, whatever, get engaged there. Um, particularly, you know, people you describe, as you described, you don't have the time, the wherewithal to do that. And then thirdly, you know, where possible, find, you know, find a cause of, that, of homelessness that really gets you in your soul, you know, and, and be a philanthropist with it, sure. you know, and commit to it. So I think those are the three things that I, I think can truly make a difference. Um, and I, on the latter one, what I would I encourage people to think about is really make sure you understand what cause you're giving to. Because I do worry there's all such a focus on this and so many great hearts and big hearts out there. Sure. But if the, the, the solutions aren't sustainable, you know, that's not a good thing. You sure. know? So how do you find a cause that could be sustainable? And that's one of the reasons I love Plymouth Housing and I talk about in Seattle because it has a, a sustainable history and it's yeah. it's got a great mission. And we can see the path to being able to take care of every one of the people that fit that demographic, at least today, you know, in Seattle over the next five years. It's great input. Thank you. Um, since I left the hospital C-suite, I've become an author and a, and a speaker. I go around the country and I travel, I present. The main um, presentation I deliver is called The Health System of the Future. My, my goal is to educate individuals on how to prepare to for self-management, how to prepare to better understand pricing transparency. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you, uh, when you think about the health system of the future, because you have, and each hospital is so unique in each different region, if an individual um, 
parent, grandparent, or even a student is thinking, I want to play a role in the health system in the future. We hear about the nursing shortage, different regions. We hear about the therapy shortage, therapist shortage. Um, if you were talking to somebody, whether in high school, college, or even younger right now, to say, here is going to be the greatest need 10 years from now when it comes to care delivery, at least in the, the regions that you're managing hospitals, uh, what would you share with them about what to um, get training in? Yeah, wow. That's an awesome question. Um, you know, it's, it, let me share a little story with you about sure. Providence and something we've done that, that we think can be applied to your entire question. So we started several years ago the Nursing Academy at Providence. Um, and the idea was when nurses were coming out of college, we didn't really have a way to train them in the Providence way. And so we created this academy. So if I'm getting out of school and I want to be a med surge nurse, we'll train you on that. And, you know, three years sure. later, if you're with us, I'll train you on it, being an ICU nurse, et cetera. And what's been really remarkable since we started, we've had 7,000 nurses go through it. The stay rate with our organization has been threefold. It's been wow. it takes, they'll stay three times longer than somebody who walks off the street. And Probably the coolest thing in, in the environment we're in and the worry about the aging workforce and all that, the average age of an RN in Providence has gone from 51 to 43 years old. Wow. You know, and so that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and so what we're trying to do is apply that to every, what we think are the future jobs in healthcare. You know, I, the first thing I would ask people is, is really what is their interest? You know, because if you're, you know, if you're somebody who wants, you know, things moving fast and all that, uh, ambulatory surgery center business will always be there. Yeah. It'll consolidate. Um, one of my biggest worries that I think as a country we're not ready for, uh, and that is Alzheimer's. Sure. You know, I, there, we did a study of where we thought all the DRGs in the hospitals would be in five years. We think up to 52% of them will be gone. Wow. They'll either be in a drug therapy or they'll be in a mm. in a in a um, uh, ambulatory setting. Um, but the one that we're we're really interested in understanding is, you know, will there be a day where Alzheimer's is the number one cause of death in this country yeah. over heart disease and cancer? And we have many, many communities when we've looked at the demographics that are senior, they're poor seniors that are single. And I, I went through my father passed away from from Alzheimer's, and that is a hard, hard thing to go through. You know, my mom was lucky. She had the resources she had and that she was connected to Providence and get the kind of care my dad needed. So I think if you look to the future, I think people that really are, want to work in that particular space, it's hard, very, very hard work. But the people I got, I've got to personal experience in that are some of the most incredible people who have the most wonderful careers you can imagine. So, you know, I think that's an opportunity. I think technology. I think, yeah. you know, I think the use of AI from everything on how we predict what the census our hospitals can be tomorrow to reading, you know, images, yeah. you know, and x-rays and all that. So, um, it really depends whether you're, you're more of a technical inner innovator. Those are the areas I'd go into. If you're, you know, deep in your soul caregiver, I, I would focus on what I think is going to be the biggest need for this country. Uh, and that is, I think, end of life care, particularly related to Alzheimer's. So let's wrap up with the question that related to that as well. And my mother just passed last year from Alzheimer's after a nine-year battle. And what I share with people, because I've been an outspoken advocate since I left the C-suite for non-medical home care being part of the conversation. And I know your organization has ventured into that pretty aggressively. Um, what could you speak to about... Um, there's people who desire to be a caregiver but may not want to be a nurse. And I always share with people, during my mom's nine-year 
battle. There was only about two months where she needed a clinician or a therapy. She just needed eyes and ears if my dad wasn't around or had to work or, or needed to go to the grocery store. Can you speak to um, kind of the non-medical component of healthcare becoming part of the healthcare a discussion because it's so much more affordable, which you know works for everyone, you yeah. and the consumer. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. <laughs> you know, having gone through a very, very similar process, um, and probably to this day, if you were to ask my mom, the people she remembers the most were the people who just simply came to lend a hand. Sure. And these were social workers, you know, that will do pretty much anything you need them to do. Um, and you know, it's interesting because we we are putting a lot of effort into that. We we actually piloted. A company, I can't remember the name of it, um, where we were actually were selling services to aging pa- uh, patient or aging sure. aging members of our community. But what we didn't do is we didn't connect it through the the kids, mm-hmm. you know. And so when it gets connected through the kids, and when you get, you know, work my example, my mom and my dad, I was with Trinity Care. Uh, that we it's part of Providence down in Torrance. And so I, I think as people look to rewarding jobs of the future, um, I think absolutely social worker type jobs are going to be huge because more and more people are just going to need to be cared for at home. And care not meaning deep clinical care, but the kind of care you're talking about. One of the things I'd love to ask you more about, and as I, I mentioned, I, I on social media talk a lot about not-for-profit status and what it means to be a hospital that's a not-for-profit. Um, can you walk the walk? Can you act like the ministry? And Providence does that as well as anybody nationally. Can you share uh, the community benefit numbers and also a couple examples of community benefit that Providence is giving back to its different communities? You know, number one, we spend anywhere between $1.2 and $1.5 wow. billion dollars a year in community benefit. And... Um, What's been really interesting is we began what we called Medicaid sustainability programs in every one of our communities. So we went in and said, how do we improve access? How do we lower the cost of care? And how do we improve health and outcomes uh, and make that done do that in a very sustainable way? And so what's really cool, in 2019, we served 23,000 more Medicaid or Medi-Cal eligible people in our communities. And our overall cost of running all the programs that we do for Medi-Cal and Medicaid went down $100 million. Wow. And so, fabulous. yeah, it really is. And, and what's interesting is when we began the journey of the Medicaid sustainability programs, our annual cost that we incurred above and beyond what we got paid by Medicaid and Medi-Cal was about $1.5 billion. We have it down to a, a billion dollars. Still got wow. a long way to go, wow. but but it, it really is a great example where all of our strategies are paying off for that particular population going forward. And then on the, the kind of more traditional community benefit, meaning money that we, we put back into the communities, I think we actually increased that. It's over $300 million by a 10% year over year. And it really is based upon you know the needs of every community. So some of it's tied back to what we do in mental health. Some of it's tied back to what we're doing in homelessness. Uh, some of it's tied back, again, to the Medicaid programs, but really trying to be that community catalyst for change in our community you know, through our community benefit. Well, and it's also a reflection of the community and, and the changing economics, particularly uh, on the West Coast right now, I think. So uh, it's great that you guys have made that a priority. Uh, I wanted to just wrap up with um, one more question. Um, when I, I ran safety net hospitals, and for those who don't know what that means, it's really for the neediest of the needy, almost entirely Medicaid. And my staff, when I would introduce myself orientation, I would say, hey, let's be great at what we do which is serve the neediest of the needy, homeless, seniors who might not have any loved ones. Um, and sometimes that set them back a little bit. They were surprised to hear that because I think sometimes our teams think, oh, we make money in surgery and in cardiology. Forget about all those things. Let's be great at what the community's called upon us to do. And I hear a lot of that 
in, um, in your goals? Would you say that you guys have made that a priority within your organization um, beyond just the, the Medicaid initiatives to make sure that you're meeting the needs of those communities? Absolutely. Um, you know, we do really, really deep community needs assessments. And then we, what's so cool about kind of the way we did them historically, we still do a lot of that. And we do it for reasons of who can we partner to make change, et cetera. But we've also become, I think, much, much more disciplined and detailed. You know, and so we, we know exactly what the top five mental health issues are in every county we serve right. and how we can go about it, who we can work with. Same thing with Medicaid population. And we're getting there on the homeless population. We're not quite there, but we're, we're getting close. Uh, and so that that is just, uh, you know, part of who we are every day uh, as an organization. And, and again, I would tie it back to... Um, you know, our vision for health for a better world. And, and we really, really honestly mean this <laughs> for the deepest part of our soul. And that is that, you know, our job is to give every person, every community we serve the opportunity to affordably and sustainably live their life to their fullest mind, body, and spirit. And that is every single person. And, you know, that is what we are truly trying to do when all the dust settles here. Uh, and I won't be satisfied <laughs> with Providence delivering on its mission until we get to that place. Because you guys are walking the walk as a non-for-profit health system that truly is a ministry. And it's my hope that more health systems will follow. So thank you again for joining me. Yeah, great to be with you and uh, appreciate the conversation. Thank you. support for Providence. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Luke, for guest hosting and to Mike Butler for sharing your insights with us today. If you're looking for more information on what Providence is doing around housing and health care, please visit future.pshahealth.org. Thanks for listening.